Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday night, and it's time for Friends and Fiction. It's our favorite night of the week, and we hope it is for you, too. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan-Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be welcoming Winfon Kwe Mai and Sarah Penner, two amazing authors and friends of the show, both of whom have new novels out this month. We cannot wait to get started. You know, we're here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. And one way you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Kwe Mai and Sarah's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. Speaking of friends, we want to get to our friend Kwe Mai quickly tonight since she has an 11-hour time difference. Where is she, Kristen? Kirkistan, I think Kirkistan? you say it. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh I'm like, not going to say that. You're really, really good. So that's why I asked nope. you. With an 11-hour time difference. Oh, my goodness. So we are pre-taping um, because it's the middle of the night for her. So quickly, um, you, you hear us talking about our amazing Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa every week. Uh, make sure that you join their Facebook page so that you can be there this coming Monday, March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern when they welcome our friend Sadiqa Johnson to talk about her new novel, The House of Eve, which you might have heard was the February Reese Witherspoon <laughs> pick. <laughs> and of course, we have our Writer's Block podcast that drops every single Friday. On our Facebook page, we will always post a link to the newest episode, or you can find it on our Friends in Fiction podcast channel, which I know you've subscribed to, right? Right? You've subscribed to it? Okay. (laughs) So on our most recent episode, which is out right now, Ron and I talked to Jessa Maxwell about her new novel, her debut novel, um, adult novel called The Golden Spoon. It is so good, y'all. It's a murder mystery set at a baking show. And then coming this Friday, March 17th, Ron and Mary Kay will be talking to Jenny Jackson about her new novel, which is the Good Morning America book club pick for March called Pineapple Street. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. All right, ladies. So let's start tonight by introducing our first guest of the evening, our friend Winfan Kwe Mai, who taught us Vietnamese proverbs back in April 2021 on a bonus episode of our show, and will no doubt impart some incredible wisdom tonight, too. No pressure on the incredible wisdom. No pressure. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it comes out of her pores. Everything she says is incredible. (laughs) I know. Dr. Winfan Kwe Mai is an award-winning Vietnamese writer and journalist. She is the author of 11 books of poetry, short fiction, and nonfiction. 
Her debut novel and first book in English, that just blows my mind, The Mountain Sing, is an international bestseller, a finalist for the 2021 Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and the winner of many other literary awards, including the 2020 Lannan Literary Award Fellowship, who hailed her contribution to peace and reconciliation. Beautiful. She has a PhD in creative writing from the UK's Lancaster University. She currently divides her time between the countries of Vietnam and Kyrgyzstan, which is a mountainous country in Central Asia, just to the west of China. Her new novel, Dust Child, was just released yesterday, and we are thrilled to announce that it's our March pick for the Friends in Fiction Behind the Book Book Club with our friends at Fable. So if you're not a member yet, visit fable.co, not com, co, backslash friends and fiction for a tree. For, mm-hmm, you could get a tree for a free trial, trial membership and read Dust Child along with us. Now, Dust Child is a suspenseful and moving saga about family secrets, hidden trauma, and the overriding power of forgiveness set during the Vietnam War and in present day Vietnam. And we cannot wait to discuss it over on the Fable app for the next month and to talk to Quay Mai about it tonight. Sean, can you bring Quay Mai on? Hi, Quay Mai. Welcome. We're so happy to see you. Sorry, I, I didn't know that um, you selected Dust Child for your book club. And I'm Hi. just so emotional. Thank oh. you so much. Thank you so much for the you know, honor of being here with you guys. I mean, Mary Kay, Christine, Pat, and Christy, the four of you are my inspiration. You know, you're not just award-winning and best-selling novelist. You've done so much to uplift other writers and contribute to diversity in literature. I've loved, loved watching your shows and I, I have learned so much from each of you. So thank you so much for having me here. You know, I was thinking about just today about, you know, the time when I was selling things on the street, working on the rice fields and trying to make ends meet and having this dream of becoming a writer. And I still can't believe that I'm here. And I thank you so much. We're humbled by you. My, that was, (laughs) did I not tell you beautiful things? Just, oh my gosh, Quaymai, you were absolutely incredible. We are honored. She's going to get invited back. That's all I'm going to say. You know, I was just thinking I wouldn't be here without people like you because you championed my book without knowing much about you back in, you know, 2020 when I was like unknown, you know, a writer from Vietnam writing in a second language and using my dictionary, no less, in writing my books. So, you know, as you can hear, I'm not fluent in English. I'm still learning every day. But having your support is just so amazing to me I'm just amazed and I need to thank the production team I, I saw <laughs> Megan before and she's just been so amazing and so many people who work behind the scene and yeah. you know I love every show that you do so regularly and I want to thank everyone who's watching us you know I love this community and 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 I once said that a book is dead if it has no readers So by reading our books, you keep our work alive. So thank you so much for reading our books and for being here with us and celebrating this friends and fiction community, which is one of the best 
literary communities that I know. I love oh, you guys. Gosh. You know, <laughs> thank you. Quay so Mai. Oh my you. gosh. Well, I, I nominate Quay Mai as our ambassador. For yeah. <laughs> I will be so happy. While she has those fourteen hours on the plane, she can. <laughs> yeah, she can. yeah, exactly. Well, Quay Mai, thank thank you so much. Thank that was so, so kind much. of you. Now, mm. the last time you were with us, Quay Mai. You taught us some Vietnamese proverbs. And if all of you out there have not seen that video, it is truly one of my <coughs> favorite Friends in Fiction episodes ever. You can find it on YouTube by going to our channel and searching for her name. But tonight, Kwe Mai, I know you're going to teach us some Vietnamese words with tonal marks. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask each of you, do you have a favorite proverb or saying? Patty, how about you? Um, I mean, I know it won't surprise you. I'll pick something Irish or Gaelic, <laughs> but I have a novel that's years old, maybe a decade old now. I think even more. I think it's about 12 or 13 years old called When Light Breaks. And every chapter in that book starts with an Irish proverb. But in the Gaelic language, they know that one word means so much more than one word. So they have this phrase for trust that I just love. It's for trust for someone you love. And it's, you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. That whole phrase means trust. You are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. Wow. Beautiful. That is beautiful. Oh, I love that. How about you, Mary Kay? Well, mine isn't as beautiful and lovely as that. But my (laughs) grandmother, my maternal grandmother was from Indiana and she had lots of interesting um, sayings and proverbs. And one of my favorites, well, there's two. One is it's just as easy to make a friend as it is to make an enemy. And then they say that a lot. And she also used to say that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. (laughs) It's a good one. I like that. How about you, Christy? Oh, that's a good one. Um, So I love the Chinese proverb. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Um, And that's, I don't know. I think about that a lot when I'm like, oh, I can't, I don't know. It'll take too long. I can't do it. It's too hard. I'm like, well, it's going to be harder in 10 more years. Yeah, it's true. Oh, I like that one too. How about you, Kwemai? Do you have a favorite proverb you can share with us? Oh, I have so many proverbs that I love. You know, I grew up with proverbs around me. So let me quote for you a a proverb about the value of patience. So when I was growing up, you know, my two brothers and I were very naughty. So sometimes my father would get upset at us. So my mom would say, uh, Soft and persistent rain penetrates the earth better than a storm. So whenever my father heard it, he reminded himself to be soft and persistent rain, you know, not being the storm. Yeah. So I think about that proverb all the time. Oh, I love that one. And Kwemai, I meant to say to you earlier, you said your English isn't perfect, but it sounds perfect to me. I think you you speak remarkable. (laughs) I think you speak remarkable English, Kwemai. I think it's just incredible. You know, I, I'm still learning every day. I have um, a, a phrase book, you know, I note down new words that I'm learning every day. So it's part of my inner thinking. So when I write, it's faster. But when I write in English, I still have to check the dictionary. When I write in Vietnamese, it's much, much easier. So I'm like a bit crazy by by telling myself I can do this, you know, writing in English. 
<laughs> well, it's yeah, awesome. the, the, the poetry translates, though. I mean, it's beautiful. I, I think you write so poetically in English. Yeah, um, so I, I think I, I will share my uh, proverb, too, um, which is also uh, Gaelic, uh, like Patty's. Um, my mom's side of the family is Irish. So that's a big part of my cultural background, too. Um, and I'm going to try to say it, actually, in Gaelic, which is Erskall. Oh, I did not even oh, try. Oh, I, I, I practiced it. <laughs> <laughs> which literally means people live in each other's shadows. But what it essentially means is that through the shelter of other people, we survive. So I love that. We, we all need oh, each other. And I think that's um, kind of one of the themes of Friends in Fiction too. So, yeah. all right, Kwemai, Dust Child, which has been named a must-read title by both the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Review of Books, follows the story of two Vietnamese sisters in 1969 who leave their village and become bar girls, as well as the stories of a Vietnam veteran and finally, a man who is the son of a Black American soldier and a Vietnamese woman. Past and present converge as these characters come together to confront decisions made during a time of war. And of course, these are decisions that force them to look deep within and find common ground across race, generation, culture, and language. So we know the basics of what the story is about. But Kwemai, what is the book really about at its heart? So, you know, uh, this book took me uh, seven years to write. And wow. it's really a, yeah. And I, can I tell you a story? Yeah. So, so in uh, 2015, I, um, I worked as a journalist and I wrote this article. I interviewed, you know, a group of um, American veterans who had been going back to Vietnam to look for the children and the women they once abandoned and oh. they you know wow. like many of them had been spending all of their savings to go back to Vietnam and wow. so few people know about that so I asked one of the veterans to write a letter to the woman he was looking for to tell her why he had abandoned her during the war when she was pregnant and why he was going back to look for her so I translated his um, his, his letter and published it as part of my article. And you know what? Three weeks later, a woman emailed me. <gasps> and she said, um, I, have, I haven't used an email in my life, but I just went to Internet Cafe, asked someone to set up this email and ask them to type you. Can you call me? And she gave me two phone numbers. I called her. I was in Belgium at that time. I called her who was in Vietnam. After 15 minutes of talking with me, she said she's the one in the letter. <gasps> she's the one in this photo. Oh, my goodness. And she told me she had mm. not told anyone for more than 40 years. Even her husband and children did not know that she had given birth to a mixed-race child son uh, daughter of an american veteran and she had to give the child away oh. and she told me throughout you know more than 40 years of not being able to share the story she cried to herself every night and she missed her child and she regretted the decision and then she told me can you connect me with the veteran i i did not know, think that he could go back and look for me because he had walked away from me so i connected her with them and they cried they cried so much and he went back to vietnam and met with her oh. Oh. and and you know like uh, through my journalistic work and um and i have helped met quite a few people find each other and it's just the, the stories are just incredible i just translate i've been like spending the last 
few weeks translating for reunion between um, a soldier or a veteran who, li who lives in Ohio who went to Vietnam as a soldier and there's an did not even know for more than 40 years that he had a child in Vietnam oh, wow. because he, he just had a casual affair or, you know, he had no idea until one of his nephews did a DNA test <gasps> and found a relative in Vietnam. And everyone said, why, why do I have a relative in Vietnam? And they, they asked him and, and he said, no, that's impossible. He denied wow. it. So oh. his daughter went uh, for DNA test and found sibling relationships. <gasps> and so he went for the DNA test and confirmed 100% parent sibling oh. relationship. Wow. So I translated for the reunion on, on, on video and it was so emotional. Oh. And, he, and he just went back to Vietnam, you know, and... I, I was traveling for my book events, but I was talking, I was translating for them at four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning because of the time difference. But that was the best thing I could do, you know, using my, my kind of understanding of different yeah. situations. And because there can be a lot of misunderstandings, culture misunderstanding if, you, if you're not careful. And he's also suffering from PTSD. Oh, wow. So you have to brief the people of what he's been going through and, I prepared him for the trip back to Vietnam and yeah, but I mean, you know, all of my writing is very much connected to real life. So, so this book, that's child is really inspired, you know, by real life stories. I worked for seven years on it and I interviewed so many people and there are so many real life stories that are woven in here and they're just unbelievable because, because, you know, in real life, the, the experiences of these people are just unbelievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wait, Mai, as you just touched on, you have a distinct cast of characters here in Dust Child who take us through the experiences of the Vietnam War and its aftermath. There's Fong, the orphan child of a Vietnamese woman and an American soldier who we see both as a child and as an adult. There's Dan, the Vietnam vet, still wrestling with the war and the role he played in it. And there's Trang, a young Vietnamese woman searching for a better life during the war. At first, you know, it seems the three stories feel disconnected, but as the novel progresses, you weave their stories closer together. Could you talk to us about why you chose those three different viewpoints to tell the story? Um, you know, because there has, no, has been no book that has been written about Amerasians and their parents. Even though, you know, during the Vietnam War, nearly a hundred thousand of mixed race children were born and they were, um, a lot of them were abandoned because the, the, the fathers were very young soldiers. They yeah. did not want to accept responsibilities or they didn't know. And the mothers were poor. They were like, um, you know, bad girls or they, or their families did not accept them in their pregnancies. Yeah, wow. So, so, you know, they had no choice but to give the kids away. And, and I, I, I just wanted to document the experiences of these women, what drove them into these de decisions and how difficult it was for them. And also, you know, I wrote this book because I was frustrated because whenever I watched a lot of the time when you watch, you know, Hollywood movies or read Western literature about Vietnam that represent, you know, bad girls, yeah. these bad girls normally appear as victims, uh, those who need to be rescued by men. But, but, 
Bar, bar girls, you're saying, right? Go, like go, girls, girls who worked in the bars in, in Saigon and, and the like. Okay, okay. Exactly. So normally they are seen as, as you know, very stupid, very naive, opportunistic, or, uh, or you know, victims who need to be rescued by men. And I interviewed many of them and they are very complex and beautiful women who went through a lot to save yeah. their families, you know, and I think the decisions, some of them made the decisions to put the children into orphanages as, as a way to save them, you know, so there are just so many layers of complexity. And I wanted, I think it was very crazy of me to attempt something that I thought was impossible that yeah. I wrote in the voice of a white man who's a traumatized helicopter pilot you know so to be able to write then in this book I had to study helicopter you know like did a lot interviewed a lot of people who had experience with helicopters and and also because of my years working with American veterans translating for them when they are back to Vietnam and I think within these year without these years of of working with the people involved in this field I couldn't have been able to to write this book. So I just wanted, you know, um, a book that, that talks about the strength that we all have within all of us, you know, the power that we have within each of us to reshape our lives despite of our circumstances so that we can offer healing, not just for ourselves, but to those around us. Yeah. You know, so that's child is very much an anti-war novel. It is a call for peace and for humans to love humans more. I really believe that regardless of our nationality and backgrounds, we are all brothers and sisters. We're yes. all children of Mother Earth and we should love each other more. You're so oh, right. Quite am I. I mean, and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about historical fiction is this ability. I'm getting choked up, but it's this ability to bring back Something that we had, yeah. I had no idea until you wrote Dust Child about that, right? We Absolutely. only have what we've been told or seen in movies and you bring a different light. And there is this line early in the book from the perspective of the Vietnam veteran. His name is Dan. And he says, Vietnam had made him believe that God had little power over a world that was so in love with war. And that is such a powerful statement. So in love with war. Do you think that you just talked about us seeing it from a different perspective? Do you think that war has the power to change the way a soldier or a civilian sees the world? Definitely. You know, like I I was born into the war and I grew up seeing the war devastation. I when I was um seven or eight years old, I was standing on my village field looking at the bomb craters, the people who had lost their arms and legs. I tell you this story. One day I was walking to school and I, I saw a mother dangling from a tree branch. She had killed herself because her two children did not go come back from the war. So as a child, you know, I told myself, the human race would not be so stupid to wage another war. I was yeah, so yeah. sure of it. And now I look at Ukraine, you know, we are mm -hmm. so powerless. You know, we, we detest the war, but we can't do much because there, there's so much power, so much propagandas behind each war, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and I don't know, as a child, I thought humans would learn from our mistakes, but we don't. We keep finding excuses and, you know, 
yeah so 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 i don't i don't know i fear that one day we would destroy ourselves with the things yeah, we boy. do to each other with the things we do to nature um it's it's, it's a sad reality but you know like i have friends here a lot of russians have to flee to kyrgyzstan where i live now because they don't want to be a part of the war and they have to leave their families behind they have to move here you know with our job without housing they they yeah. just have to survive and wait until this war is over so you know wars and and i know i know a lot of uh, people from ukraine you know the people who don't have don't have heating when it's so cold now the children who who them don't have even lighting to study and you know people have to struggle every day and and have to survive and you know i'm having all this comfort and i'm asking myself am i entitled to this you know and and it's terrible because all people suffer in wars you know russian yeah. people suffer Uh, you know ukraine people suffer in this war and you know in v- in in vietnam we we have this very famous saying by a vietnamese poet uh, nguyen duy who says who wrote nói cho cùng trong mỗi cuộc chiến tranh phe nào thắng thì nhân dân đều bại in the end of each and every war whoever wins the people always lose yeah, yeah. so yeah. true that is so true mm-hmm. for sure That's really um that's really powerful. This whole show is really I know. <laughs> wow. Oh I my know. goodness. My goodness. Yeah. Um but um one of the things that struck me about Dust Child is that you wrote the Vietnamese words and names the correct way using tonal marks rather than anglicizing them. So can you tell us a little bit about what tonal marks are and talk about why you decided to do that and maybe teach us some Vietnam some Vietnamese words with tonal marks? Thank you so much uh, uh Christy for this fun question. <laughs> so you know this is my name as you can see it has uh, all the uh, the little marks on them you know. And when I um I started to um to prepare for the publications of my book in English uh, the mountain sing at first I was thinking you know if i abbreviate my name remove the tonal marks people would remember it i would sell more books right mm-hmm. but then i told myself i want to respect the vietnamese culture because because of our you know we we are a country with more than 4000 years of history yeah. but we have been colonized by so many empires first you know uh, the chinese the mongolians the japanese the french and you know like because of colonization we've lost so much of of our you know culture and language like when the vietnamese language whenever we are published as part of the western text we expected to remove the diacritics and to and i feel this is the process of colonization because we have to change our language to to please the eyes and ears of the western readers so i told my publisher i rather sell less book than you know than dishonor my language so i wow. thank everyone who is reading my work because you decolonize literature about vietnam by accepting and embracing our language and you know talking about the decritic so let me um teach you a few words right using uh one sample one example of this word ba can you say ba 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 so you know so if the word uh, bo in vietnamese whatever marks uh is published in the western text 
in the as part of the English text, normally it appears as ball, but actually it has many different meanings. Ball. 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 It means mistress. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> This is ball. 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 Ball means father. Wow. Things are very different. <laughs> <laughs> This is another one. It is called ball. 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 Ball means to chop or nutritious. Wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I would do I, I would do every single I would call a father a chop and a chop a mistress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not making this up. These are real from one word. Yeah. Okay. Bo. Can you say ball? Ball. Ball means a uh, uh, pathway, you know, like go by the road. Wow. Yeah. Ball. Bow means toilet. Wow. <laughs> so your father can be a toilet. Or <laughs> <laughs> your mistress. Your Or mistress. Your mistress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one is bar. 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 Bar means bank. Wow. Bank of um of uh, of a river. And this one is, can you guess? No. <laughs> ba. 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 But means um, but this means to kiss someone's ass. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> this one is um, oh this one I. Bur. Bur. means uh, butter or avocado. Oh my goodness! From one word, yeah. And yeah. this one, this one is bar. Can you say bar? Bar. Bar means to leave. This one is ball. Bar. Bar means uh, a bunch, like a bunch of flowers, a bunch oh, of vegetables. Bar. Bar. Very good. Bar means a cow or to crawl on the floor. To crawl on a cow. And this one is bar. Bar. Bar means insect. Oh my gosh, and all from the letters B. I would not do incredible. well learning Vietnamese. I can tell you that. Oh, that is unbelievable. Oh, Quay Mai, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank That's you awesome. for, you know, uh, okay, so now we learned, right? So now I should uh, be giving a test. I should test you. <laughs> no, you should not. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> So so, so anyway, that's just an example how important these dear dear critics yeah. are, and why yeah. by not keeping the dear critics, we misspell the language, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So thank you. Oh, wow. I mean, that was such an incredible lesson. We really appreciate that, and such an yeah. such an important cultural insight too that I think we need to we need to bear in mind. So thank you. Yeah. you you've uh, again, you've imparted so much wisdom and. It's just been such a pleasure to have you. But before we let you go, Kwe Mai, I know you're coming to the United States on tour. By the time this show airs, you will already be here in the in the future, which is amazing. How can we find out where to catch you on the road? Oh, you know, like um, I, I hope to see as many readers as possible. So I will be um, tonight, 
or uh, tonight, the, the 15th of March, um, I will be at the Seattle Library. And then after that, San Francisco, Auckland, Orange County, Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, <laughs> Essex Park, wow. Boulder, Houston, oh. Washington, D.C., Maryland, East Sandwich, Boston, New York City, Pittsburgh. So oh my, my the links are on my website. I mean, it's an epic tour. I it hope I will like survive. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope I will survive because of the 14 hour times difference. Uh, so I will be better in jet lag. But you know, my husband says that I'm a light bulb when I'm around readers. I'm like explode because like I, I have endless it. energy because oh. I love my readers. Oh, well, you know what? I feel like I can speak on behalf of all your readers and say, we love you too, Kwemai. We we adore you. We're so glad you're coming to the US and we're so glad that you joined us here tonight again. So to all of you, you, all of you watching out there, don't go anywhere because coming up in just a few minutes, we have author Sarah Penner here to chat about her new novel, The London Seance Society. But first, Kwemai, thank you so much for joining us and bringing such light into our lives, both with your books and just by being you. We really appreciate it. And we wish you the best success. Thank you so much. I have always felt, you know, so emotional to be on your show because I said last time, it's like, go. it feels like going to Hollywood, you know, to be that story <laughs> from Vietnam. And I feel that right. way because uh, you are you're my, my inspiration. So thank you so much for having me. It's my great honor. Thank, thank you, you everyone for being you. with us today. Thank Safe you. Safe travels, Kwemai. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kwemai. Thank some you. Sleep. Get some sleep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Bye. 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 Thank you. Xin chào. Bye. Bye. All right. So our friend Sarah Penner is waiting in the wings, and we're very excited to talk with her too. Um, there's been so much buzz about her books. So we're very excited about her yeah. coming up. But first, a few quick things to tell <laughs> you about. Here at Friends in Fiction, we are all about books, from our separate book club to our podcast, and of course, the show that is run by the four of us, all who happen to have brand new books out in 2023. So if you think that you might want signed first editions of those books, listen up. Right now, you can head over to booktown.com and find our Friends in Fiction first edition subscription. Um, Why should you order this package, which comes with four books spread over four separate months? Not only will you get signed first edition hardcover copies of each of our books the week of each of their releases, but you'll also get a limited edition kitchen towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for friends and fiction. So you can order this amazing package right now from booktown.com. That's booktown with an E at the end. And we might be adding a tiny little surprise. In yeah. So yeah. You'll we just want have to see when you get there. We'll yeah. just have to see. Yeah. So we want to make sure you know about our in-person events coming up. You'll always read about them in our newsletters and on our individual sites and on our individual newsletters. But for a quick recap, we will be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th and then in Charleston, South Carolina at Buxton Books in the Riviera Theater on May 1st to celebrate the launch of The Secret Book of Flora Lee. And then on June 6th in Huntsville, Alabama, um, with Snail on the Wall at another theater for Kristen's The Paris Daughter. And on July 20th, we'll be in our beloved Oxford Exchange in Orlando Tampa, for Tampa, yeah. Chris, 
I mean, for Tampa. <laughs> I don't know why they always do that. It, oh, it, it keeps, it keeps yeah. popping that up in the script. Yeah, I don't I know. know why, Tampa. For, yep. for Christie's launch of the summer of Songbirds. And tickets for all of those events are on sale right now. But there's so much more. Yeah. <laughs> you get the bamboo steamer, the Ginzu knives. <laughs> we are going to be in Christie's hometown of Beaufort North. Not hometown, but her town. The town of her heart. The town of her heart. How's yes. that? Yeah. yeah. My heart's hometown. Someone said that and I was like, oh, how cute. <laughs> um, we are going to be in Beaufort, North Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer fundraising event with earlier.org. And then in September, we'll be on the road again for the launch of my Christmas book, Bright Lights, Big Christmas. In other words, between April and September, we'll be together at least once per calendar month. And you can come to be there with us. Make sure you're signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and for our individual newsletters, too, so that you're the first to know more. Okay. All right, ladies. I can't wait to hit the road with you in person. But for now, we have something nearly as exciting. A deep dive with author Sarah Penner. Sarah is the best-selling author of the enormously popular debut novel, The Lost Apothecary. She began writing seriously in 2015 after attending a, move, a moving lecture given by Elizabeth Gilbert. Well, yeah. Soon after that, she enrolled in her first online creative writing class and hasn't looked back since. Sarah graduated from the University of Kansas with a degree in finance, but now after more than a decade in corporate America, she is thrilled to call herself a full-time writer. When she is not at the keyboard, you will likely find her in the kitchen, in the yoga studio, or running outdoors in the Florida heat. Sarah and her husband are proud residents of my native Sunshine State, where they live with their miniature dachshund, Zoe. And I'm, we're going to, first thing I have to ask her where she lives so I can show up at her house. Yes. <laughs> to play with Zoe. Play Maybe with the dog. Drop a pin like in the Facebook chat. Oh, I'm yeah. sure she'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll show up with all four of my dogs. Wouldn't that be epic? Oh my God. So Sarah's new novel that was just released on March 7th is called The London Seance Society and was selected as the Book of the Month Club pick for March. Sean, can you bring Sarah on? Hi, Hi Sarah. Hi, everybody. Hi, we Sarah. are so happy to have you. Thank you. I have to say, Kwe Mai's uh, language lesson just now is has been the highlight of my day. I was I was on mute, but I was reciting the words as she said them. <laughs> yeah, um, that was just so wonderful to to watch her. Um, there must be something kind of emotional going on in the air right now because I feel like I'm on the verge of tears. Maybe it's yeah. all of this launch madness, but her her introduction had me over here like with a tissue. So I'm yeah. so honored honored to be here with the four of you. And I remember two years ago when The Lost Apothecary came out, you all had me on and I was just starstruck. And I still am. That has not changed. Um, but it's, I, I just want to say how warm and welcoming the four of you have been from day one, particularly for debuts. You've been so gracious with your time. And it's just such an honor to be here with you all. Oh, it's oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Sarah. Oh, thanks so it's much for saying that. Yeah, we love having yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, this is such an exciting time for you and that you're taking time out of it for us is awesome. So this novel takes place in 1873 Victorian England. The spiritualist movement is on the rise and people are communicating with the dead through mediums. 
In the London Seance Society, Lena Wicks is trying to solve her sister's murder when she becomes involved with an acclaimed spiritualist, tell me if I say this right, named Vaudeline Delaire. You nailed it. I've practiced. (laughs) They team up and they cross paths with the powerful men of London Seance Society to solve two murders. It is a truly spellbinding tale about two daring women, and you always write about daring women, it's awesome, (laughs) who hunt for truth and justice in the perilous art of conjuring the dead. But as we love to talk about on the show, that might be what it's about, but I want you to tell us what you think the heart of it is really about. Yes. Thank you so much, Patty, for that lovely introduction. You're right that on the surface, the book is a murder mystery. It's meant to be fun and feminist and full of cliffhangers and twists and all of the things that readers have come to love about my books. But beneath the surface, there are a couple of themes that I think are much more important that are discovered in the book. And the first one is this desire for us as humans to connect with the people that we've lost. So I lost my dad when I was 28 and I know everyone I know has lost someone. We we've all lost someone. And so this desire to connect and, um, relive some of those really beautiful experiences in whatever way we can, I think that's a universal human desire. And so we find this, the protagonist in my story, her name is Lena. And she, as the story begins, she has lost her little sister under suspicious circumstances. And she does not believe in ghosts. She does not believe in seances, but she's desperate because the police have given little to no consideration into the murder case of her little sister. So out of desperation, she seeks out a medium, which as you mentioned, are are very, they were very common in Victorian London. And she starts to realize very quickly that she, despite her skepticism, actually has some very natural talent in the art of mediumship. So that's the first thing uh, that I think is kind of below the surface of this book. The second thing is a little more fun. There's a lot of truth versus illusion exploration in the story. So seances in Victorian London were brimming with fraud and ruses and tricks. And there were a lot of fraudulent mediums during the time who were trying to make money and draw huge audiences to watch their fraudulent seances. And so while researching this story and then ultimately writing the the things that take place, I had so much fun with kind of teasing the characters and the reader with what is real and what is not real. And there are some times where I don't really make it explicitly clear because I want the reader to kind of be holding holding their breath and, and turning the pages. And with The Lost Apothecary, my debut, I, I did a similar approach with the magical realism aspect. And I just love teasing readers and characters with the the question of, is what I'm seeing with my eyes real? And is this experience real? Or is this a trick or magic or an illusion? So those are kind of two of the main themes beneath the surface of the story. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the origin of this story. And I'm fascinated mm-hmm. with the fact that your background is in nuts and bolts, finance. (laughs) But then you give us, you know, with the lost apothecary and then with this moody atmospheric setting of the loss of um, the London Seance Society, you bring us back into this sort of foggy, shrouded world. Um, 
and you have women who find their way around in these worlds and cliffhangers. Um, tell me the, I, the, the germ of the idea for this, because um, what was the spark that's, that started the fire of this story? Right. So it's, I allude to it in the dedication at the very beginning of the book. So the book is dedicated to my big sister, Kelly, but then below that in parentheses, I say that the book is also dedicated to my mom because she was the first Mm -hmm. one to say, Sarah, we should go to a seance. And my mother is a big believer in the spirit world. And a couple of years ago, she she pulled me aside and she said, Sarah, I want to go to a seance, but I don't want it to be something just funny or playful. Like I want to actually seek out a real medium and go to a seance. So as it turns out, in the United States, there are two existing villages that are centered around spiritualism. And one of these two villages happens to be about 90 minutes from my house yeah. uh, in Casadega, Florida, yeah. which is <laughs> I've been there. Yes. So we've got a couple people. Anyone who's been there is probably chuckling because it it's about one street full of <laughs> psychics and mediums. Um, so my mother and I went on a very top secret trip because I had sold the book to my publisher, but I did not want anybody to know the topics and themes that I was writing about. So I told my mom, you cannot put any photos on social media. We're going to go see these psychics. We're going to go to this seance, but, uh, no pictures and, and no spoilers. So we went out there and, I am a skeptic. And so I had, I kept my journal very close because I am so much like Lena, the main character in the story. And so I wanted to draw on what was I feeling as I was surrounded by all of these people who not only believed in ghosts, but made it their life profession to help uncover this spirit world. So I kept my journal very close and just uh, wrote down what I was seeing, what I was feeling, what I was experiencing. Um, So that was that my mother's comment really was kind of the seed of an idea. And I've always wanted to write a ghost story, but (laughs) I wanted to steer clear of a haunted house. That's a very common approach to ghost stories. And I wanted to do something really fresh and really different. So um, I, after my mom said, you know, go to a seance, I thought, oh, I love that word. I love this idea of a seance. And then immediately given my interest in writing really strong female characters, I said, okay, that's what my main, what one of my main characters is going to do. She's going to be internationally known for her skill in the art of seance. So once I had that, I was, I was off to the races. I mean, I have to ask, did you come away a believer? <laughs> All right. So I was, I'm ready for this question because I knew when I went to this seance that after this book came out, everyone would be asking me uh, mm-hmm. what happened at the seance. So here's what I will say. I walked into this this seance, uh, which was held in the evening. There was uh, six or eight of us. It was, it was a very small group. The lights were off, but he had some candles going. And we sat in a circle. And I walked into this really, truly hoping for some sort of really pivotal transformative experience, right? And by the end of the seance, I was the only one not in tears because I was the only one in the room that had not had a powerful experience. But what came of it is this. There was an older couple across the room from me, and they were very emotional after this sort of seance um, meditative imagery thing that the, that the medium walked us through. 
And I, we came to find out because they shared it with the group that they several months earlier had lost an infant grandchild and mm. the, the mother of that child, who's their daughter, they were estranged from, they did not have a relationship with them. So they never got the opportunity to bond with this infant. And so they were regularly attending seances because they were able to, to kind of find a source of peace and contact with that child and develop a relationship that they felt was meaningful to them. And so what I realized in that moment was it does not matter if I'm a skeptic and you're a believer or vice versa. What matters, as I mentioned at the start of this, is that we all are seeking that connection with important people who may no longer be here. And if a seance or mediumship is the means by which that couple is able to accomplish that and find peace. That is a beautiful thing that should be appreciated and celebrated. So I walked out actually, I think learning the greatest lesson of all, which was that this isn't about achieving concrete black and white evidence that spirits exist or don't exist. It's about respecting someone else's experience. And I think that applies to religion and politics and sexuality and so many themes in our culture today where we're always at war with one another because we believe that we're right and they're wrong. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like we can all be right and we can all have our own opinions. So when I walked out, I I realized that was the life lesson in it for me. And it was a different lesson that I went into it expecting. I really love that. That's cool. Yeah. Now I understand there is a real London Seance Society or was one. Is um can you tell us about that? But of course women couldn't be members. And and that famous (laughs) authors were part of it. That's right. So the London Seance Society, which you'll read about in the book, this exclusive men's only organization, it's very prestigious. All the men are very affluent. It is inspired by a real life organization known as the Ghost Club, which was founded in London in the 1800s. Charles Dickens was a member. Arthur Conan Doyle was a member. And in Victorian London, these men's groups were very popular. They existed for travel, for politics, for reading, all sorts of things. And then of course the ghost club was founded for people who were interested in the paranormal and particularly for those who wanted to investigate the paranormal. But when I was researching this club, what I, what I learned um, and really struck me immediately as I need to, to work this into my book is that women were not permitted. They were not even allowed on the premise. So I immediately thought, okay, my story features a couple of really powerful, um, I'm sorry, not powerful, but really strong-willed women who are in this repressive society. So I'm absolutely going to find a way to get them into this secret men's club um, (laughs) and, you know, kind of see what they can discover while they're there. So I loved reading that women were not allowed because that was perfect fodder for my book. And women are allowed, by the way, in the club now. It's still in existence. So that's good. We've come a long way. Um, Although there are a couple of, I'm not going to give any names, but there are a couple of clubs in London that are still men only. And that, of course, doesn't sit real well with me, but it's a fact. Oh, man. Well, Sarah, you mentioned the restrictive society at the time. So the Victorian era is full of rules, traditions, regulations, um, things like that that would just seem outlandish to us today. So your research must have been deep and wide because the way you convey it um, really puts us there. So talk to us about the Victorian era for women and its 
traditions specifically around death? Because that's something obviously that's touched on in your book. Absolutely. So this is, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that I wanted to handle sensitively in my story. Um, but the reality is that there are a lot of traditions that we still adhere to today that originate in the Victorian era. So the Victorians were very superstitious. They had a lot of what we might view as kind of strange customs and traditions. Um, and I have this really interesting book on my research shelf where this author goes through and he he was looking at all of these old newspaper extracts or, or, or um, pulling quotes from newspapers about how different funerals and funeral processions were handled. One of the more interesting things that I discovered, and part of this is because I love animals and I, I've always kind of felt a really strong connection with animals, but um, in these funeral processions, you know, back in the Victorian era, every, there were no cars. These, these were all carriages or an omnibus or something like that that was driven and, and um, kind of pulled by horses. So they would have these dedicated horses to pull these, these funeral procession carriages. And it was customary in the Victorian era for households who were in a state of mourning to place black wreaths or black ribbons on their doorways. And these horses mm -hmm. became so accustomed to seeing out of the corner of their eye, these black wreaths or these black rib ribbons that the driver would not even need to pull back on the reins to tell the horse where to stop. The horse oh. would see that and just know to stop on the street. Like we've arrived. Oh my, at our oh my goodness. Yeah. So I, I discovered that as I was sifting through some of these old newspaper articles, you know, this, this driver said, my horses know right where to stop. I don't even have to touch the reins. And so I worked that into my story. So it was, um, it was little factoids like that, that are so fascinating as a historical fiction writer that we get to it's very fun to kind of weave them into our own invented yeah. narrative. But the back of the book has a list of Victorian funeral customs. And I know some early readers have commented that they found that really fascinating additional material. Awesome. That's so cool. I have to tell you this because just when you said this, it made me think of it. Um, when I was um, working on the wedding veil, I was writing about a ring that um, Edith Vanderbilt wore and just randomly one night in my feed on Instagram, this ring popped up and it was like the exact ring with her initials and like everything. And my husband was like, you have to, you have to buy that ring like that. You have <laughs> to have that. And I couldn't do it because it had someone's hair in it. And like, I had no idea about like the Victorian custom during mourning of like oh. putting people's hair in the jewelry. And I was like, I just can't wear someone's hair. Like I just, it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, there were, there were emporiums, dress and, and attire emporiums that all they stocked was black mourning attire. And sometimes widows who were too bereft to leave the house, the emporiums would send out their, their dressmakers to these homes of the wealthy and they would stock them up with six months to a year's <laughs> worth of black attire because that was yet another one of the customs. And I think we all kind of yeah. know that from media and pop culture. Um, but and the 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 length of time that you would wear mourning attire, 
um, dependent on how close you were to the individual. Men, for instance, when they, on their top hat, there was typically a ribbon that would wrap around it. And if someone who was sort of distant, like maybe a cousin had passed away and you were at his funeral, it was customary for that ribbon to be very narrow. But if it was like a spouse or someone much closer to you, that ribbon could be up to seven inches wide on their oh the brim God. of their hat. So there were so many rules. And, you know, today we're just kind of advised wear dark colors. But again, that all traces back to these, wow. um, the origins are in the Victorian era. It's really fascinating. That's so interesting. interesting. Well, this novel opens with a seance and it's so wonderfully atmospheric and from there there are twists and turns and cliffhangers and you take us through it all as we try to find the answers to the murder mysteries so um can you tell us about this plot and do you outline or can you talk about how you plot i'm sorry right. don't tell us about the plot you want to <laughs> read the book don't tell us about the plot. do you right. plot so when I sold the book to my publisher, they bought it off of a one-page pitch. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. That's my dog barking. No, we, we, lo we love we dogs love around here. Dog. Yeah. yeah. I have dogs. little treats for her in the event that she gets really <laughs> crazy. So um, her name is Zoe, and she likes to make an appearance on, on the show, I she guess. She wants us so, to know she's here. Zoe, come here. Um, okay, so with The Lost Apothecary, which was my debut, I just drafted it um, because I didn't have a deadline. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a book deal. Um, so I had the luxury of just drafting and not outlining. But with the London Seance Society, which was on the heels of the success of The Lost Apothecary, I, I sold the book on a one-page pitch, just two paragraphs, was really excited. And then I realized, okay, now I actually have to go write this thing. And my publisher wanted it in 10 months. So I'm so sorry. No, don't, we don't, don't apologize. We, we love dogs. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah. My husband just got home. So that's what she was barking at. <laughs> um, so I sold the book and then I realized I only have 10 months to write it. So I had to outline the story and I had to have my editor approve the outline, my agent approve the outline. But what I found was once I actually got to writing the book, the outline helped. And I'm sure you all know this because you've been through the process of drafting versus outline, et cetera. But I found that the I was able to actually draft the story in 11 weeks. So oh my because, God. Of, the, because of the outline. So wow. Um, I still had to ask for a slight extension on my 10 months, um, deadline because of revisions were just taking a while, but that does help. I find with sort of, as, um, as Chrissy mentioned, there's a lot of, uh, information reveals and cliffhangers throughout the story. So I found that the outlining kind of helped organize that so that I could ensure I wasn't giving away information too soon. It's so fascinating how different every book is and how different each of us either plot, outline, or don't. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Mary Kay and I were together this weekend and we had questions about that. And, you know, we do it so differently. And then all five of us do and still end up yeah. with a book. But before we let you go, because you are in an incredibly busy time, I want to ask how was writing this sophomore novel? Was it a different experience? And then tell us where everyone can find you on the road or online. Yeah, it, it definitely was a challenge in that I felt like with the success of The Lost Apothecary, the bar was pretty high. And 
the thing about readers, as you all know, is when a when an author returns to write something else, readers want the same thing but different. But different. Yeah. So that's <laughs> such a task for an author. But I will say I'm very good at compartmentalizing and I believe at the end of the day, like what matters is that I'm proud of the work. And so I just, every time I sat down to write and to, to research, I told myself that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. All I want mm -hmm. is that when I write the end and submit this to my publisher, that I feel proud of what I've done. So when I kept going back to that, that helped a lot. That's awesome. Um, for for readers who are interested in knowing where I'm at, um, I'm touring for two weeks straight, a different state every day, and that starts um, March 21st. So uh, anybody who's interested in knowing where I'll be can um, on my website, sarahpenner.com. I have all of my events there with registration links and so on. So there's a lot coming up, but um, I'm so thankful every day that this is the turn my life took. I mean, someone mentioned earlier that I had 13 years in finance and I have no formal writing background. So the fact that I'm sitting here today talking to you all um, and getting ready to just launch the second thing into the world is a blessing that I don't take for granted. Oh, that's amazing. Well, this is an incredible book. So everyone out there, run and go get it from our bookshop.org page or go find Sarah on the road. And Sarah, thank you so much for spending time with us. We Great so appreciate you. it. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So good to see you. Okay. And everyone out there, don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every single week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you will not miss a thing. We are so excited for next Wednesday night when we will be joined by Colleen Oakley and Julie Garrick Dalton and Stephanie Marie Thornton. Yes, I said three names. Colleen <laughs> Oakley, Julie Garrick Dalton and Stephanie Marie Thornton. And so good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.